Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Hack. It's our first weekend edition and we're ever so slightly excited. Well, I'm not quite as excited as Alina is. I am, but I'm not hysterical. Alina, can you do this without without screaming? I'm going to try and be as professional as I possibly can in this very moment. Tell so, everyone who's here, I'm do it. I'm absolutely honoured to introduce to you all the renowned scholar and classical historian, Professor Mary Bid. She has published many best-selling historical books like her book on Pompeii, SPQR, Laughter in the Roman, uh, Ancient Rome, sorry, while I get things wrong, including many, many others. Some of you will also recognise her from her amazing TV programmes. Thank you, Mary, for joining us and welcome. Oh, it's great to be here. Doing a, you're doing a really grand job in these troubled times. Oh, thank you. I am honoured. So, Mary, how are you faring with lockdown? You're in Cambridge, aren't you? I'm in Cambridge and I'm, I'm working at home and I'm being very um, obedient and I'm not going out. But I'm, I have to confess that, that I, I'm not following all the bits of advice you normally see about how you should work from home, like, you know, always get get dressed <laughs> I sometimes find that I I am in my dressing gown all day uh, and I'm I'm my my naturally indiscipline tendencies uh, are becoming more pronounced I think you're you're fine because we've already admitted to showering less both of us at some point this week I, mean, I think <laughs> I think it is a little bit of an excuse to let yourself go and I'm not sorry I'm not going to use like expensive mac makeup when the only person who's going to see it is my cat so uh, I'm going to embrace it I don't smell like a badger or anything but I, I am perhaps not as diligent as, as I have been, and I think, I suspect, Mary, you've admitted as well that um, you've uh, yeah, got pyjamas most of the week. That's right, and I'm, uh, I, yeah, I am letting myself go a little bit, but, you know, maybe there's nothing too wrong about that, you know? No, I think... I don't like this New Zealand idea where you get up and they've got, the, the, in New Zealand, the kind of self-quarantining, people are getting dressed every Friday in their posh clothes to kind of show that they're still um you know uh, social human beings but seems to me absolutely ghastly oh that's awful we recorded our first down the pub um segment last night and everybody was lying around on their sofas getting drunk and we all looked awful and we loved it it was just as much fun and, and <laughs> no effort whatsoever so yeah i'm with you mary i'm not doing that let well, mary, it out that's <laughs> <laughs> so, mary i've actually attended quite a fair few of your talks Great, gosh. She is a closet classical historian. Um, She's she's a Holocaust historian or a concentration camp historian. But whenever you mention classical history, or you in particular, or Pompeii in particular, she starts squealing like a 12-year-old. Never too late, Talina. Never too late to change your specialism. (laughs) You sound exactly like Catherine Edwards and Christie... (laughs) And all of my ancient historical, classical uh, lecturers at uni, they were like, you should change, come to the dark side. But, but I actually have a question before we get involved into, into our Q&A. So I went to a talk of yours um, for your book, Roman Laughter. Absolutely love the, the talk, by the way. But you actually answered a really question that I'm really hoping you could tell our listeners. And it was, how did you actually come up with the idea for the book? Um... That's quite a funny story, I suppose, um, that I'd agreed to do the series of lectures that 
that kind of underpins the book about laughter. Um, and it's always much easier to agree to give a series of lectures than to decide what the hell you're going to give them on. Um, and they were getting more and more pressing that I should provide a title for the lectures. And eventually, you know, really it was, you know, I was up against it. And I happened to be in California and I happened to be by a swimming pool um, drinking a very nice gin and tonic. And I thought, look, I've got, you know, there's 10 minutes now and I've just got to send them an email back to say. So aided by the sun, the pool and the G&T, I thought, do you know, what? I want to write about something that is that is kind of fun. You know, the last book I'd written had been about the Roman triumph. And, it's, you know, I, I think it's very interesting, but it was very kind of serious power politics and military. I thought, I know what I'll do. Well, I'll write about laughter. So I just sent that off. I just said to them, oh, OK, I'm going to do Roman laughter. And at that stage, it became, you know, I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't sort of write back in 12 months' time and say, well, I'm not sure I'm going to do that anymore. So it was... It was a, a topic con conceived um, with uh, alcohol-assisted uh, by a swimming pool. I think this is brilliant because it just confirms or, or reaffirms for me anyway the godlike presence of gin and tonic and how it is never, ever a bad thing. Um, Alina's a vodka girl. You have to excuse her today because she did drink nearly an entire bottle for our Down the Pub segment, which is, I think it's a bit of nerves, but I think she might be hanging just a little bit. Alina, are you ready? I, I am. I'm really ready, actually. We've got some amazing, absolutely amazing questions that I'm really excited, including one from my mum, who oh. um, also got very excited. <laughs> so um, should, we, should we kick off the Q&A? Yeah. Yeah, let's. Okay. So um, I actually, I thought I would put this one in for the first question because it's from a lovely lady who um, wants to ask a question for her 14-year-old son. Um, so the question is from Sarah Laws and she asks, how did the Romans do multipl multiplicate, multi multiplication and long division as you can't do it with no Roman numerals as she can't do long division with Arabic numerals? Right. Well, that, I think, is one of the really interesting questions about Roman life. I mean, I think some of the most interesting are, are questions about ancient Rome are the, are the questions that we kind of don't bother to ask ourselves. And... Uh, you look at these Roman numerals and then you suddenly twig, how on earth did they do calculations? I mean, it's not just um, uh, multiplication, you know, it's, you know, basically how do you do adding up? Um, no, I'm not a historian of maths. And if you go on, if you Google this, you can find some extremely complicated ways in which you can do multiplication in those very strange Roman numerals. And maybe that was a system that some Romans used. But I think that what we have to kind of get on board with here is that almost certainly most basic day-to-day -day calculations, you know, you know, I've got, you know, so many of these and I want to sell them at however many denarii each, how much profit will I make? Those kind of calculations. I'm sure that most were done on abacuses and that they didn't, most ordinary people, you know, in the local bakers, in the local shop, didn't use um, that kind of Roman numeral notation that we're so familiar with still, you know, it's on, you know, half our clocks in the West have still got Roman numerals on. Um, I bet they used abacuses. Now, at this point, you're going to say, well, how do you do an abacus? Uh, and then I'm going to say, I don't know. But what what is absolutely clear to me from looking at cultures today where abacuses are still used is that you can do enormously complicated calculations using a, an abacus, you know, if, if you've been trained to do so. I haven't been. So I think the answer is most people didn't try to do long multiplication with Roman numerals. That's brilliant. Can I just say, though, that a historian of maths sounds like the worst job in the world ever. I think I'd rather work on a self-checkout somewhere um, than, than do that. Um, I'm going to move on to, uh, please uh, excuse my pronunciation, I'm going to try and get it right, Rosanna Nachera is asking again for, for a student, could we ask for a child thinking of taking A-level ancient history? Yes, come on, let, let's, let's make them choose it. Um, 
what would she recommend as a good taster slash introductory book to introduce into the subject? Well, I think actually there's, there's lots that are really good. Um, uh, and so these are very kind of personal choices. And please, anybody listening to this who doesn't find their own book mentioned, this is not a criticism, but there's too many out there. I and mean, I think for um, Greek history, I think somebody whose his books really do kind of speak, you know, speak to the moment is um, a writer called Paul Cartledge. And he wrote a book a long time ago now, but it's still very good, called The Greeks. Um, and he's recently written a book about democracy, which goes beyond ancient Greece, but actually is very much thinking about how modern ideas of democracy are both in tension with and dependent on ancient Greek ideas of democracy. So I would go with Paul Cartledge. Um, for Rome, if you want a good narrative um, of one of the key periods, I think that um, Tom Holland's Rubicon, um, which tells the story of the, of, of ultimately the fall of the Roman Republic um, down to Julius Caesar, is, is a great read. Um, I, I, modesty should forbid me to say this, but I think that um, my book on Pompeii is quite fun if you want to find out how archaeology can contribute to understanding literally what happened in an ordinary bog-standard Roman town like Pompeii. It's called Pompeii, a life in a Roman town. So, Modesty um, be damned, Mary. Part. Your SPQR <laughs> is the best book on ancient Rome <laughs> I've ever read. Um, oh, that should well. be on the list as well. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes. I totally agree with the Paul Cartilage uh, um, book as well. I mean, Paul is, is, is brilliant. He's a brilliant uh, Greek historian, ancient Greek historian. Sorry. I think uh, Mary was spreading the love a bit there as well, but uh, Tom Holland's Persian Fire, I love that. I prefer that to Rubicon um, personally. Oh, but again, oh. yeah, I do. I do because I had to use that for um, my A level study. So, um, yeah, I, I, I fell in love with it then. And that's what made me read Rubicon afterwards. But I didn't quite fall in love with it the same. But um, Alina, move on. So let's let's move away from the uh, A-level students and try and... We're not going to try and stump Mary, but let's try and give her something a bit more meaty to get into. Perfect. No worries. So we've got Kevin Mc, Mc, Ianney, I apologise again for the pronunciation. Um, I had to gen up on Greek history, something to help my daughter. Athens had everything. Theatre, science, philosophy, democracy, as tremendous military successes against threats from the East, and yet, why couldn't Athens and Sparta have just tried to get along? <laughs> Gosh, that would have been nice, wouldn't it? Um, I mean, I think that raises a really big question about um, conflict and conflict between states in the ancient world. And it reminds me of what um, one of my own undergraduate teachers um, said to me ages ago, um, Moses Finley, a really great ancient historian, and perhaps I ought to have recommended some of his books because they're still damn good. Um, he said, what you have to understand about the ancient world is that it, it's not a world in which war breaks out. It's and the, the kind of the normal state of affairs is peace. It's a world in which peace breaks out and the normal state of affairs is war. And what I think he was trying to get at was that what you have is, in, in a sense, the idea that every city-state, particularly in the Greek world, we're dealing with Athens and Sparta, you know, essentially their relationship to one another is always one of conflict. Uh, and uh, so what you're seeing is a world which kind of configures the whole relationship between states and thinks of what the normal state of affairs is in a completely different way from us. It's a kind of, it's, it's constantly competitive. And it's more than competitive, it's also conflictual. And in, in many ways, that's one of the, the kind of biggest differences, which I think Finley was trying to capture by saying, look, think of this as a world in which peace breaks out, not war. Um, that we're dealing with um, constant low-level hostility, not with um, nice international cooperation. That what happens... 
sorry, yeah. I was just going to say that nails it for me, that quote about this is a world where peace breaks out and not war. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to roll, <laughs> that's, Mary's got an email, um, I'm just going to roll in the next uh, three questions. Uh, kind of, uh, everybody is uh, talking about, we had a lot of questions about talking about the ancient world and pandemics and plagues, and they want to know um, various things. So just there, there are three key points, I think. Um, we have one question that says, uh, it's a statement, uh, this crisis is unique in human history up until the climate crisis, true or false. Um, there's another one uh, asking if um, ancient Greeks and Romans left, uh, Romans left any narratives or advice about how we could deal with this. And finally, Julia um, would like to know who did best. Um, she also says, Mary, please keep cheerful, wash your hands and look after your neighbours. <laughs> Um, I think that's really interesting because the ancient world is a world in which um, plague, um, pestilence, contagion is always on the agenda. And there were some really devastating outbreaks of it. I mean, one of the classic instances uh, comes in the middle of the 5th century BC, um, in the middle of the Great War between, or the very beginning of the Great War between Athens and Sparta, where Athens is devastated by a plague. And many people would suggest, and it's, I think it's not stupid, that the loss of manpower that Athens suffered at the beginning of her great war with Sparta was one of the reasons that she lost the war, you know, that she just lost too many soldiers. Now, that in some ways is uh, at a, a smaller scale globally from what we're looking at now. But, you know, in a sense, um, in terms of the universe of Athens, it was as devastating. And people write, uh, particularly, it's a particularly vivid uh, account in Thucydides's History of the Peloponnesian War in book two, where he talks about, you know, the number of corpses that there were, people dying on top of other people, um, the panic, uh, the real kind of um, sense of social and moral breakdown that happened. Um, and you might say, okay, well, that's small. It probably did affect places other than Athens, but Athens was very cooped up. In, um, sort of under lockdown almost um, against the Spartans and of course then the, the, the plague spread particularly quickly amongst them. But if you go to Rome and you go to uh, the second century AD there's the plague in the second half of the second century which is a, a much more recognisably global uh, outbreak um, because the Roman Empire is a joined up empire and people move around it, and so plagues spread very quickly. And that's very much akin to our globalisation now and why this is a global pandemic. It's because um, we've become a global culture. Now, Rome, in its own terms, was what they thought of as a global culture, and the whole of the empire suffered from this. Probably, we don't know, that probably millions died. Now, how did they deal with it? Um, well, their views of how things spread um, were very different from ours, and their view of the causes of epidemic was very different from ours. And it seems pretty clear um, that many people, not all, I think, but many people saw plague as somehow God-given, that, you know, that, that they had not properly worship the gods they had sinned but humanity had sinned and this was a punishment sent by the divine um i think that there are upsides to it as well though i mean it's hard ever to think of an upside to a pandemic but i think we shouldn't forget that if we think about the history of western literature uh, and let's go back to the very beginning of western literature with homer's iliad um what happens at the very start? What's the first episode in the Iliad? It's a plague affecting the Greek army at Troy. And so I like to say to people, look, um, there is a way in which uh, awful, terrible, uh, uh, as, as this kind of contagion is, actually Western literature was launched by a plague. 
<laughs> so there are creative um, engagements with plague, which I think have been hugely influential. Look at Sophocles's um, play on Oedipus the King. What do you get? What is the what, you know? What kicks off the, the the whole narrative of Oedipus marrying his mother and the rest? A plague. So, um, plague is plague is a creative tool of antiquity as well as a terrible, devastating one. So, in terms of who did best at dealing with them, then uh, it's not really the same thing, is it? It's not uh, if it's God given; it's something that washes over you, and it's not something you tackle by the sounds of it. I think. Um, I think nobody did best, <laughs> and I think that you know we um, we should count ourselves lucky, terrible as it is, that we have a much clearer idea of what causes uh, contagion and how you can avoid it. So this is you know we are we're feeling very gloomy and rightly feeling very gloomy, but um, we've got uh, you know they didn't have ventilators in ancient Athens. I'm going to combine, I'm actually going to combine two questions um, because I think they, they link in quite nicely. So one is from Gustavo and then my mum actually asked the question. Uh, she got very excited that I was going to be speaking with you. Um, so there was a fight actually between, not an actual, there was an argument between my mum and my dad because my dad also loves um, ancient history. So I said, look, one of you can ask Mary a question and one of you can ask Tom a question. So um my mum won with you mary right. so <laughs> let's start look let's let, let's roll this question i'm going to roll them into two so at uh, one sorry uh it's a pleasure to ask you what were the benefits of being a roman soldier was the salary good and could everyone enroll and then to link on to that my mum asks what percent percentage of the invading roman army were not ethnically roman yeah um on the advantages of being a soldier i mean let me just say to start with, there was a hell of a lot of disadvantages too, um, like um, wounding, death, discomfort, and so forth. But one of the things that service in the Roman army offered you um, was a pension. <laughs> and if you were not a citizen, it offered you a way into becoming a full Roman citizen. There were basically two types of Roman soldiers. There were the legions and the so-called auxiliary troops. Um, and the legions, you, in order to become a legionary, you had to already be a Roman citizen. You served for changing amounts of time. They fixed the, the length, the maximum length of service at different points, but um, certainly some years it was 16 years, it went up to 20 in some cases. Um, but after that, once you had been discharged from the legions, um, you got um, either literally a plot of land to call your own, or you got cash, which would buy you that. So there was a sort of sense of a pension entitlement. Now we take pension entitlements for granted, but you know, in a world like Rome, where there is no social safety net, um, that was really important. In the auxiliary forces, now they most soldiers in the auxiliary forces were not citizens. They were uh, members of the provincial population, and the advantage they got, as well as uh, a, a bounty and discharge, was they became Roman citizens at discharge. So those those soldiers uh, became, by virtue of their service, uh, uh, in the Roman army, it was a route into becoming a full citizen. And, and many of them did. And we have wonderful um, examples of little bronze plaques, which listed the soldiers who were retiring, who'd become Roman citizens. And um, you know, they presumably carried these around with them um, to prove their citizen status. That's Russell Crowe, isn't it, in Gladiator? He was a Spaniard. Yeah. <laughs> Some, you know, yeah, it's and it is, you know, the thing about Rome is there's something awful about it. You know, it's not, it's, you know, it's, I, I don't ever want to go back there. It's not kind of, you know, it's not my idea where I find home, but it has all kinds of uh, mechanisms of social mobility, uh, particularly into citizenship. And probably the reason that the empire lasted so long is because it, it, in a sense, exploited those mechanisms to bring people on side to it um, because they didn't have the manpower to 
um, to enforce obedience. It was more carrot than stick often. Now, there was also plenty of stick. I don't think Boudicca thought that um, she was being offered a carrot in any way. But uh, you can see that these there's an attempt, conscious or not, to get people to think of themselves as Roman. I mean, there is one thing that's pretty clear about the average length of service is that um, the Romans adjusted it much in the same way that we are now adjusting people's pensionable age. Um, and the, the tendency is for the average length of service for a soldier, is to, for a legionary soldier, is to move up from 16 years, get longer. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, why do they do that? Uh, almost certainly because this great um, uh, pension plan that they offer retiring soldiers was hugely expensive the state and one of the ways of saving money on pensions is to make people retire later uh, and so uh, you can see that by making soldiers serve longer the state is saving money on the pension plan because largely because some of them are going to die before they reach pensionable age that, that is exactly what western governments are doing now you know? why is the pensionable age going up because we can't afford the pension now, as to Alina's mum's question about what, what, what's the kind of ethnicity of the Roman army that, that would invade, let's say, Britain, I think it's always very hard to know about ethnicity in the ancient world. We don't really know uh, or, or only get very, very uh, fleeting glimpses of any kind of ethnic identifiers in the modern sense of the word ethnicity. But what we do know, uh, to put it a bit more generally, is that it was a very diverse army. And most of them probably didn't come from central Italy. You know, we, we kind of imagine, particularly I think when we think of Hadrian's Wall in the north of Britain, we imagine these poor Mediterranean types, you know, who are used to lovely Italian sunshine, um, you know, ending up... Uh, you know, in the pouring rain and cold at South Shields. Well, actually, the Roman army by certainly into the first century AD and the second century AD was very mixed. An awful lot of the people who um, policed as soldiers Roman Britain actually came from what we now call Holland and Germany. Um, they were other northern imperial types being used as the kind of guard on another northern imperial province. We, we also have quite a lot of evidence, though we don't know how many this was, of um, people from North Africa uh, serving uh, in both in the administration and the army uh, 
of Roman Britain. And one of the guys, one of the most famous governors of Roman Britain, um, is a man called Quintus Lollius Urbicus. And he comes from what we would now call Algeria. And we have evidence of this guy on Hadrian's wall. We've got uh, inscriptions where you know, his governorship is commemorated. We've also um, got his tomb just outside the town of Tidis in Algeria. Now, we have no idea of what we would call the ethnicity of Quintus Lollius Urbicus, but we can see that um, it is a much more mixed army than the sort of asterisk version of the Roman army would suggest. So moving on um, to another question, uh, Eloise would like to know, I love this question, she asks, what are the ancient Greek and Romans like as parents and is there a concept of childhood? That's really interesting. Um, partly, I think you have to say childhood was kind of invented in the late 18th, early 19th century um, in the West. And uh, before that, whether it's in Rome or you know, Britain in the 12th century, um, children are just small grown-ups. Um, uh, and our whole idea of the construction of childhood, you know, with children's own books, children's clothes, children being treated so very differently, is um, partly a modern construction. And so the Romans didn't have it. Now, I think that that's true. Uh, I think you can go a bit too far down that line. Um, and there is, there is some sense that kids... Kids had toys, surprise, surprise. And um, archaeological excavation or excavation in tombs was found little kind of wheelie things with, which you pull on a string. Um, and there is a, 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 a sense that children were a bit treated differently. So a, a famous passage of the Roman historian Tacitus takes us um, to uh, what the dining arrangements were like in the first century AD Roman palace. Now, actually, the children dined together with the grown-ups in the royal family, but they dine on a separate table. There's a kind of kids' table and a grown-up table. <laughs> um, so you, you, don't, you don't have the kind of cult of childhood, and you certainly don't have any notion of the teenager or anything like that. Um, and you have some concessions to the idea that young people, um, insofar as they are young, have certain um, different privileges or restrictions. And the earliest Roman law code, for example, um, discusses, this is you know, back in the 5th century BC, seems to discuss what the age of criminal responsibility is. That, you know, if a child nicks an apple, um, it, the child doesn't get treated in the same way that a grown-up would get treated if it starts something. Um, but much more, much, much more limited. Um, I think, uh, yeah, because part of my research now, I'm, I'm doing Edward VIII, and I'm talking about the uh, introduction in the 1930s of the concept of youth and of there being like a, something in between childhood and adulthood. I think it's a very modern yeah. thing. Yeah, it is. It is. It really is. And we kind of think of, um, we've so internalised, you know, the whole kind of, um, well, partly for commercial reasons, yeah, childhood is a big seller and people make a lot of money out of childhood. We've internalised this category, which the Romans and well, kind of anybody before the 19th century certainly wouldn't have. And I think you're right, the teenager is an, an, an invention of the 20th, probably. Alina, who's next? So Emma asks, should women view Aristotle as a Nazi? as he claimed the female was born a substandard male and therefore born subhuman, who deserved to be eliminated for her failure in not being born a perfect male. Um, I, I think it would be unfair on Aristotle to judge him a Nazi. I think, uh, I think very few women today, however, would find Aristotle's views about what a woman is particularly congenial. Uh, and if you want a book about this, um, Edith Hall's recent book on Aristotle, um, I think would be very helpful. I think that um, 
uh, while part of me, you know, hates Aristotle, <laughs> the other part of me says, look, what he's trying to do is that something very intellectually interesting, you know, because he's raising an issue which we still face, raise, and find controversial. He's trying to say, what's the difference between a woman and a man? You know, what, you know, what makes a woman? How do we understand the difference? Now, we don't find his answer particularly palatable, <laughs> that, you know, that a woman is a substandard man. Um, but I think you have to give him a lot of credit, uh, and other ancient writers too, for, you know, for the first time in the West, really facing that difference about what's, you know, how do we understand sex and gender? And, you know, we know that we've still not got that sorted out. <laughs> so uh, I think we can be a little, a little tolerant of Aristotle in making a bit of a mess of his answer and congratulating him on raising the question. I think, yeah, because had he been serious about eliminating all women, there's a flaw there, isn't there, for the future of humanity. So I think you're right. And... Yeah. Okay, so going on to our next question, we have Potato Toro, which is a bit of a tongue twister, would like to know what was life like for the working class? Did they live the typical Roman house, for instance, or in a smaller terrace style house? And what was their day to day life like? Um, I think that we've sort of been brought up partly from film and television to kind of have this image of a typical Roman house. It's got a nice little garden in the centre and um, uh, it has a, a front hall. And, you know, even if it's small, it's you know, reasonably posh. Now, uh, I think that for the, for the ordinary person, you have to forget that. I mean, even that level of housing is for the relatively privileged. And if we're talking about Rome and Italy itself, you know, I'm not talking about Britain here. Most people in Britain um, would have lived like they'd lived in, you know, in the Iron Age, they'd have lived in, you know, perfectly nice but modest huts, probably. But if you're thinking about Italy, and particularly about the city of Rome, then most people are probably living in high-rise apartments. Some of those apartments reasonably decent, um, reasonably spacious, but others effectively kind of tenement multiple occupancy. And I suppose if you're going to be brutal, what you'd say is people who had even um, you know, one room to call their own were still doing relatively okay. And there is a frightening lot of stuff um, in uh, Roman law codes, for example, about what to do uh, about the people who were um, in kind of squatter accommodation under aqueducts or um, using somebody's tomb to live in. So it's a kind of, it is a real problem of, of both the evidence of literature and of archaeology. Literature is not much interested ancient literature in the poor. They, most of our elite writers see the poor as um, you know, a blot on the landscape. And the poorer you are in terms of archaeological evidence, the less traces you leave. If you're living in a house um, you know, made of you know, bricks and mortar, um, something survives of your living accommodation. If you have a tent under the arch of an aqueduct, you leave no trace. So I think we have to reckon that there's a lot of people in the ancient world who leave no trace. What they did in terms of a day, their day-to-day -day activity, we really also have not much clue. I mean, it's very easy to pick up one of those everyday life books, you know, everyday life in ancient Rome. You know, the Romans got up early and had a small breakfast. They then did everything. That is all fantasy. Um, we really don't know. Actually, we don't really know for the rich, how they organise their time. But I imagine that for the poor, you know, what's the reasonable hypothesis? It's that they spend all their time trying to get enough, uh, enough wages on what, you know, we now call the gig economy to keep body and soul together. Uh, uh, and it's a tough life and it's uncomfortable and there is no 
social safety net. The only safety net you have is if you have a, a patron who is in a better position than you and will look out for you. You know, so if maybe you've been a slave and have been freed by your master, there's still some obligation on him to look out for you. And I think the, the important thing is that there was no social safety net at all in ancient Rome. Uh, so you relied on people looking out for you. So, for example, someone higher up the food chain. So, for example, um, if you were a slave, had been a slave and then had been freed by your master, there was still some obligation on that master to, um, to give you some support and assistance. But if you had nobody looking out for you and you were poor, I mean, in the most brutal terms, you were, you know, and I hate to say this, you were a problem that solved itself because those with no support and no work and no money coming in died, basically. I have, I have a question, actually. Um, wasn't it during your Pompeii program, it was um, Andrew Wallace Hadrill, wasn't it, who um, discovered the sewers in Pompeii and managed to analyse certain um, aspects of food that the Romans were eating? Yeah, one of the things that Andrew did, it was at Herculaneum, not Pompeii, but it's a very similar town, uh, also destroyed by Vesuvius in 79. Um, what he discovered was a kind of cesspit under a block of flats. And basically it was where all the contents of the lavatories uh, of the block of flats above just you know gone into great pit unmediated by anything and by analyzing um what was now actually very sort of um fine-grained fertilizer um it wasn't i went down it wasn't shitty at all it was just very kind of nice we put your pot plants in it um <laughs> i carefully analyzing bags and bags of this stuff he found what the people living above you know you know, a very middle-ranking um, apartment block uh, were eating because you know what you know what they put in their mouths come out their bum and then gone into the cesspit, and it was just what you'd expect. It wasn't kind of um, you know those lavish Roman banquets of you know stuffed dormice etc. They were eating chicken and eggs, um, a lot of sea urchins. There was an alarming number of little fragments of sea urchin spikes, which you think must be a bit painful going through the digestive tract. Um, fruit, you know, it was a, a good basic Mediterranean diet, but minus the tomatoes, of course, because the tomato hadn't been introduced. <laughs> Do you know what? I think we should throw Mary off with a question. What do you think, Alex? I, I have no, I, I'm out of the loop. I don't understand this question, but go, because I know she wants to answer it. So, so let's go. <laughs> so Patterson asks, what is your favourite mushroom recipe? <laughs> There's only one mushroom recipe in ancient Rome that has got any, any fame at all. And it's the mushroom recipe with which his wife Agrippina poisoned the emperor claudius okay so yeah it's, it's favorite in terms of bumping off someone you don't like basically favorite very much in inverted commas <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay i have a question um from andrew creed he said so he's read your pompeii book and he wants to know mary is pompeii going to give up any more secrets yeah loads um, one third of Pompeii is still unexcavated uh, and basically it's being left that way and there's a very very small bit of excavation at the moment just at the margins of that area basically to stabilize it but I think that what archaeologists are very conscious of is that um, you know we've got two-thirds of Pompeii it's quite hard to look after it's still got secrets itself to give up like um, you know, looking at the cesspits and analysing them at Herculaneum, which really wasn't possible until modern forms of bioarchaeology emerged. But it's probably our responsibility to leave that third um, for future archaeologists, because not only are there new secrets there, enticing as it would be to know them, but also we have to imagine that in 50 years 100 years 200 years there'll be more sophisticated techniques for analyzing that stuff 
And so that um, it's our responsibility really to leave it behind for those that come after us. So plenty more secrets. We'll no doubt see a few of them, um, but happily our, you know, our descendants will see lots more. We've actually got a, <clears throat> a question from someone you know, um, Luke Daly Groves. We actually interviewed him uh, earlier in the week about uh, the Hitler conspiracy and he got very excited when uh, when he knew that you were coming on our podcast. So uh, we had to choose one question and we finally chose one and it is what is the funniest piece of ancient Roman graffiti you have ever read? <laughs> well the Romans are quite funny actually. We, um, and that's partly what my book about uh, Roman laughter was all about, to kind of uh, remind people that although we think the Romans are terrible stuffed shirts, um, actually they were um, uh, pretty jolly uh, in terms of laughter and humour. And there's, uh, there are great bits of graffiti. Um, I mean, I think one that I'm uh, very attached to, really, um, is... A little couple of lines of verse on the walls of Pompeii, which says uh, something like, Oh, wall, I'm amazed that you haven't fallen down yet with all the weight of that rubbish that's been scrawled on you. So graffiti kind of makes the wall collapse. Um, there's another one, um, which is um, on the wall of uh, what looks as if it was a, a, a kind of bed and breakfast in Pompeii. And it says something like, oh, landlord, um, I'm terribly sorry I wet the bed, but you didn't provide a chamber pot. <laughs> I love that. I, I did walk around a corner at Pompeii um, to find a massive erection scrawled on the wall. It was a tiny little figure. Yeah. It, it's like it's the, proportionately the rest of his body is the same size as the boner, which was quite a surprise because I had never seen Roman pornography pornography before either and I, I was being very very careful in in interpreting uh luke's uh desire for funny graffiti and i was um not uh going to the raunchiest graffiti but i tell you if you're interested in um all the different versions of i had a great bit of sex here <laughs> rather than crudely than I it. Um, Pompeii is the place to go. There's a great Roman word, and I'm sure you can guess, even if you don't know Latin, what it means. Which is the it's a verb, footuo, and the <laughs> fu I think will give you. And there's plenty of graffiti which says, "I footuoed many girls here." <laughs> I love it. We now, Mary has taught, if nothing else, you learn nothing else from this podcast, Mary has taught you how to swear in Latin. Um, I yeah. love, love this, new, this next question. Francis Merrick wants to know, he says, you're hosting a dinner party, and then he says perhaps feast is more apt, um, and can have a time machine at your disposal. Which figures from the classical world are you going to invite? I think that's dead difficult because... You, you instantly think, oh, yes, I'd like to have the great orator Cicero find out what he's like, or Nero, he'd be fun, or, um, you know, Agrippina, the murderer of uh, the Emperor Claudius and mother of the Emperor Nero. And I think some of those would be quite nice. But really, I think the people that I'd want to hear from at my dinner party would be all the people that we don't sort of hear about or from in the ancient world itself. So I would like to hear about from the you know, I'd like to invite the guy who kept the local baths. I'd like to invite um, the slave cleaner. Uh, I'd like to invite, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to find, you know, going back to the idea of um, um, raunchy graffiti, I'd like to invite not the clients from the brothel at Pompeii. I'd like to hear it from the girls who work there. So I think a, a fantasy dinner party would be an excuse for not just meeting your kind of favourite big men and women from antiquity, but it'd be a chance to meet the, um, uh, 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 the people we don't hear about. I'd love so, to. Would so, you I'm invite gonna... Aristotle as well so you could tell him what you think of him or oh, grill him? him. Oh, we could him off. Yes. yes. <laughs> I, think, I think I might avoid philosophers. <laughs> yeah, they, well, I think they'd hog the conversation, wouldn't they? Cicero, everybody think uh, philosophers would certainly hold the conversation. They they would be a bit of a pain in the butt. Um, Cicero, everybody would think would be very boring, but we tend to forget 
But although we see Cicero now as kind of this po-faced orator, you know, standing up in the forum, you know, waving his arms around and dressed in a toga, his reputation in the ancient world was that he was the funniest man who ever lived. And that if he had one fault, it was that he just couldn't keep a joke in. Even, you know, even when he was better off not joking. So I think he could be kind of amusing. But again, I suspect that I suspect he'd go on a bit. <laughs> I, I don't think one of my best friends, Linda, would be very happy with that answer. She, she really does not like Cicero. <laughs> I, I don't know why. One of these days I'm going to find out why, but she, she can't stand him for some reason. I, I might ask her. But Mary, listen, I really want to thank you for something really important for me. Um, so you actually saved me from an exam, not once, but twice. So I was doing my practical archaeology exam. For those who are listening, yes, I, I'm also classified as an archaeologist, theoretically. Um, and the night before, I watched your Pompeii programme. And um, let's just say I passed with flying colours and uh, used a lot of Mary Beard, she suggests, and a lot of Pompeii. And I need to apologise. I'm really sorry, Tim, um, that I did that. But now you know the truth. That's quality <laughs> history programming right there then, isn't it? That's, that's right. I'll be quoting you, Alina. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And it's been great to be here and I'm really pleased that you're doing this, particularly when we're all quarantining ourselves. It's great things to listen to. I think Alina is trying to plan one of our down the pub Friday night uh, debate sessions for classical ancient <laughs> history. So if you want to join us down the pub um, in due course, we'd love to have you um, tomorrow. I don't have to drink a whole bottle of vodka, Alina. You know, yeah. might be Only if you join me. A huge incentive to over drinking. <laughs> yeah, it does. Drinking it... with Mary Beard. I'll be the luckiest girl alive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, tomorrow we have, and actually our, our guest tomorrow is, is, is another um, fantastic historian. Even he was excited about the idea of Mary Beard's Q&A. Dan Jones is with us tomorrow afternoon. Um, of course, the Britain's best medievalist, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of writing uh, epic history um, from the period. He's written about Plantagenets, the Wars of the Roses, the Rise of the Tudors. He talks to us, actually, as well as talking about his books, fascinatingly, he talks about his new project and stuff he's moving on to, but also how to write uh, an epic history like that and comprise a massive, massive subject down into something um, readable for the general public so it's a really interesting chat with him um, so we will see you tomorrow Mary once again thank you and take care thank you thank you thank bye, you so bye. Much. bye. and at home uh, make sure that you stay safe if you can um, and because you really should now stay at home uh, this is Nighthawk signing off When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.